It was a number of years ago now in a church in Philadelphia with the great Christian leader of years gone by, Donald Barnhouse, stood in his church and declared war on bumper sticker Christianity or folk religion, whichever term you prefer, but he stood in his pulpit and he said this, prayer changes nothing. That is a direct challenge to bumper sticker Christianity because the bumper stickers in the folk theology that we like to adopt says prayer changes things. Barnhouse would have none of that, nor should we. Because the reality is, if we say prayer changes things, then we make ourselves to be as God. We bow to the sovereignty of God when we come in prayer. I want to begin today with uh, something that is very out of the ordinary for me. I am not uh, what I consider to be a bandwagon kind of guy. Just because somebody else is doing it usually means I don't want to do it. And it certainly does not mean that I'm open to it just because somebody else is doing it. But I want to... I want us to participate today in the next few moments, and I would love to encourage you to participate throughout the rest of the day in a, an emphasis that comes to us as a faith community. It's called Blue Sunday. If you're not familiar with that, then there are websites, and one particularly bluesunday.org, that you can go and look and see, it is a Sunday in which we as a faith community are encouraged to pray for victims of child abuse and for those people who give their lives uh, in stepping into the midst of child abuse to try to help. This is worth doing for us as a church. Through the years as pastor, I've had people who were members of churches where I have served, who served in uh, various capacities, some with Child Protective Services and others with Buckners and other groups that serve as advocates for children and especially those who are abused. Um, I have seen firsthand the toll that that calling brings on the lives of those adult workers. Um, I never expected that Teresa would ultimately work for them. That's not a fact that we necessarily publicize. It's not that we're ashamed of it. But you know, there's a lot of negative connotation for some people that come to the CPS. Um, let me just encourage you to be informed. Some of the most horrific humanity that we see happens to children in our society. And in our church, we have some who work, several, as a matter of fact, who work um, with agencies dealing with children who are victims of abuse. We have medical professionals in our church who work with victims who come in and need treatment. We have law enforcement in our church who often are the first ones on the scene to witness firsthand. 
and gross inhumanity to children. It is easy to compartmentalize our lives and act like that doesn't really happen much. But it's horrible what we do to children. And I think it's worth us doing as a church before a holy God and asking for his help. You agree with that? So, we're fortunate to have a minister to children and their families who was in law enforcement for a while. And I asked Kevin to voice a prayer for us, and you join with us, and we pray. Kevin. God tells us in Psalm 2710, when my, my, my father and my mother forsake me, God will take care of me. And I truly believe that men and women who are out there every day fight for our children and children that need help. I believe that that verse just speaks that that's who we put on this earth to help take care of those children. So as we go into prayer this morning, we want to think about the men and women that serve, but more importantly about the children that suffer needlessly all over this world by man's hands. So if you will join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this gracious day that you've given us, Lord. I bring to you our hearts that we're humbled that we live in such a great community and, and country that we have the ability to care for our children, but we know that there are children that suffer, Lord. So I'll raise those children up to you and just send your angels and your love to them to protect them and help them get through the situation that they're in and let them know that there is a God that loves them. Lord, I pray for the men and women that serve to fight for those children and fight for their freedom and, their, and to, to get them away from their oppressors, Lord. I, I pray that you just guide them and and direct them in everything they do and all of their actions, Lord. I, I mainly pray that you give them strength because if they are the ones that are standing up for what's right for our children, just give them strength to get through that and to continue that fight because, Lord, I know it's hard and it suffers when you come home and, and remember the things that you saw on the day, Lord. I just pray that you give them courage to put that behind them and to keep fighting, Lord. And again, just, just embrace the children of this world that need you need to feel your love and just help us do whatever we can to show that love to him and just bless these children and these workers, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now, do you think God hears those prayers? What do you think he does with those prayers? The reality for us, I think, is that if we're really honest with ourselves, we can step back and look at the prayers that we have prayed and wonder, my God, why didn't you do something? I want to challenge our thinking. Actually, I will let John challenge our thinking today. We find ourselves now in the home stretch of our series out of the book of 1 John, as we've been talking about being connected first with God and then with others. We find in this last chapter, John, or 1 John chapter 5, we find here some sticky theology. And so because of that, I want to let Aaron and Kevin preached the next several sermons, and I'll give them the assigned topics. No, I'll leave it to them. Uh, but I do want us to struggle a little together. Um, I call it sticky theology because it's not necessarily what we always hear. And it requires something of us when we come to texts like we're going to look at today and next week and possibly the week after. First John chapter 5. As we've been working through this series, we've recognized that John 
writes and teaches in something of a spiral. He has four primary points of purpose that he writes this little letter around. Uh, and he rotates in discussing one to the next and then to the next. And he'll circle back around the ones that he's talked about. And, and we just find this all through the book of 1 John. And in chapter 5, as he begins now his conclusion of the entire letter, he states one of those primary purposes for us in verse 13 when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I, I want to stop for just a second. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because I've preached uh, at least a couple of sermons on this particular point of purpose. But it is fundamental and basic to the Christian life. And before we can even get to some of the other stuff that we'll see in this passage, we need to nail this down. So let me just put it this way. Do you, right there where you sit, do you know without a doubt that if you died during this worship service, that you would go to heaven? Now please... Don't die during this worship service, all right? It's hard enough for me to preach without somebody out there dying. It just disrupts the whole flow. Seriously, do you know without any doubt that you are a child of God bound for heaven? And if you're here today and you don't know that, by all means, you should say. Jesus Christ died on the cross to cover your cost of sin. He died so that you don't have to. At least not that separation from God kind of death that we take on the moment we come into this world. Jesus Christ died so that you could have life. John says in verse 13, I'm writing these things to you so that you can be sure about that. And if you happen to be here today and you're not sure about that, then settle it now. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe you're lost and you need a Savior? And do you believe He's the only Savior available? Settle it. Now having said that, I want us to look at some of the implications when we settle that. So let's look a little further now. And we're going to be in particularly verses 14 and 15 today, but I probably want to read a little bit more just to let you get a foreshadowing of some of the sticky theology we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. Verse 14, after John gives the statement of purpose in verse 13, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Now that might have just kind of filtered right past you. The question is, what do you want? And if you read those two verses the way we just read them, um, that's a little sticky. But we'll come back to that. Verse 16. If it, this is even more sticky. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. In other words, here's the question that we'll look at next week. Is it possible for you to pray for somebody else to have life? And God grant that request. Well, I'm glad Aaron's preaching next week. <laughs> 
John goes on to say in the middle of verse 16, There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So, what do we take from that? What I want us to look at today is, are the implications of being a child of God. And specifically, implications that are tied to prayer. And we're going to look at these three, actually there's two implications that John talks about here. One of them is confidence and the other one is concern. And we'll deal with those in two separate sermons. But the confidence part of it, in other words, because you know that you are a child of God, that's verse 13. Then one of the implications, the natural follow-up to that is that you have confidence in prayer especially. Let's flesh it out. Just a little bit. I want to make sure you get the implication and the strength of the word implication that I'm using here. Have you been following the news the last 24 hours or so? As I understand it, some major earthquake over in the top of the world region of our planet, near Mount Everest and uh, Kathmandu and that area, some huge earthquake. That's the action. But it has caused a reaction up in the Himalayas where there has been an avalanche where a number of those hikers who are trying to get to the top of the world on Mount Everest were killed in this avalanche. The avalanche was a direct effect of the earthquake. Put it this way. You remember a number of years ago now, there was an earthquake off of the coast of Japan that caused a tsunami. The tsunami washed in over Japan and killed hundreds, thousands of people. Remember that? Cause and effect. One directly leads to the other. What directly grows in your life out of the assurance that Jesus is Lord? Well, look what he says. We'll start off in verse 14. Three different pieces of confidence we have. You should know that the word confidence here in its fullest sense involves courage. It's the grounds from which you get courage. The confidence you have in God. He says in verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. The first of three pieces of confidence is we can be confident in approaching God. Y'all know that my daughter married uh, a knucklehead uh, um, preacher type. And uh, they got married almost a year ago, the first part of June last year. And uh, not long before that wedding, I went to a preaching conference. I know you can't tell, but I did. Um, and while I was in the spin-up to this preaching conference, I was talking to John, my soon-to-be son-in-law at that point. And he said, really, who's going to be there? So I started reading off some of the people. And I got to this one guy's name, and John just went, oh, oh. Man, he's like my hero. I, oh, man, I can't believe you're going to get to go hear that guy. I've never heard of the guy because I'm old like that. And he said, you got it. You got it. So he got me one of this guy's books, and I read it, and I thought, oh, that's not bad. I'm not sure I'm you know, quite as excited about it as he was, but I started reading through it. I said, okay, that's good. I'd be interested to hear this guy. And so somewhere in the mix of all of that, I decided that it would be really cool, since I was going to be there two weeks before the wedding, 
It would be really cool if I could catch this guy, this speaker, and get him to call my son-in-law on my phone so that my son-in-law answers a phone call from me, and it's actually this world-renowned speaker talking to him to give him wedding congratulations. That seemed like a great idea until I stood down there in the front of this huge church with thousands of people there, and I'm waiting for this speaker to break free from everything so that I can talk to him. And then I was thinking, who do I think I am to be so presumptuous to think that this guy would care about a guy that I don't care about? Love him to death, and I did even then. Okay? But those are the thoughts, right? You start going, this guy's going to think, I'm some Yahoo from Texas. And so while I'm down there, Waiting, it was at a break time, and this guy was busy doing something. And while I'm standing there waiting for my son in law's hero, a guy who wrote books that were transformational in my pastoral ministry walks past me. I mean, the author of these books that God had used to just turn my whole perception and ministry around. Walks right past me. There's nobody else in the whole section where I am. It's him and it's me. And all of a sudden, I became that, oh my goodness. Oh, I should talk to him. No, 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 no. Who do you think? You know, so I, I slip into all of this presumption. That those guys might have time to talk to me, a nobody pastor from Texas. I will tell you just to finish the story because you're always jumping me out for not finishing the story, all right? I talked to both of them. Both of them were very gracious. The one guy actually took my phone and walked away with it to leave my son in law a message on his voicemail. But here's what I want you to get from that those guys are just men, and I know they're just men, and yet at the same time, I'm going, man, these guys. How much more should we feel self-conscious about stepping into the throne room of heaven with God? And you know what's wrong with what I just said? Let me repeat it for you because I know that you got past some of us. How much more should we be self-conscious about stepping into the throne room of heaven? You know what's wrong with that statement? We should not be self-conscious about stepping into the throne room of heaven. Remember a couple of weeks ago we looked at 1 John 3 1 where he said, consider how incredible it is that God would allow us to be called his children. And we are his children, John says. And with that comes the ability to take our very mundane lives into the throne of life. John says we have confidence that we can do that. I wonder if your level of functioning with God reflects the deep truth that I just stated. I know that my life, I'm going to give you a lot more credit than I give me. I know that in my life, I'm so aware of my own sin. That some days it's really hard for me to want to step into the throne of heaven. Because I know that if I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to come to grips with just how wicked my heart is. 
You can't step into the presence of holy without understanding how unholy you are. That just comes with it. And yet John uses a term that is rich for us. We, we have confidence in coming to the throne of grace. We, we can step into heaven in prayer with a holy God. And he gives us, he says. So be confident in approaching God. And if there's something in your life and you know there's something in your life that's separating you from him, just deal with it. Actually, you know, the better way to say that is let him deal with it. Because he specializes in dealing with unholy people. That's the first one. I know you're wishing all three of them would be that quick, but they won't be. Here's the second point of confidence for us. Not only do we have confidence in approaching God, John says that we have confidence that God hears us. Let me say this. I want you to make sure you listen with both ears now. Because it's going to sound a little bit, a little bit different. So let me finish it out. Simply approaching God does not take us far enough. Let it settle in, and I'll say it again. Simply approaching God does not take us far enough. I had the occasion. Whether it was a privilege or not depends on whether you're Republican or Democrat. I had the occasion years ago to meet the Vice President of the United States. Now, as anything, noteworthy in my life, it's because of my children that I had that privilege. It had nothing to do with me. Uh, Lauren was, I guess, going into kindergarten, maybe first grade, somewhere in that age frame, I think. It was that special magical age where they have some big people teeth and some not so big people teeth. And, uh, <laughs> I remember that because Lauren got her picture taken and it was in the local paper. She had a friend of hers doing, you know, a scary face kind of thing. Because as we went into the summertime, there was this traveling kids drama group that came to our town down in the valley. Uh, and they put out invitations for children to try out for this drama. It was going to be the Wizard of Oz. Most of you know that story, right? And so Lauren and some of her friends went and they tried out for this thing. And Lauren got selected. She had a monkey or something. Something like that. <laughs> Time I'm sure. Uh, so Lauren got selected for this thing, and then the deal was they would go all day and they would practice, and then at the end of the week, they would have the big production in the city auditorium and you know all that kind of stuff. And so it's kind of a big thing in our family, I suppose. Um, but the big thing came as we got a little ways into the week, they let us know that the vice president of the United States at the time a guy by the name of Al, I created the internet, Gore, was coming to town. And I believe that it was on some kind of a campaign stop. I, don't, I said earlier that it was, and I got to think it might have been just one of those vice president waste your money visits. But um, whatever the case, he flew into the valley. So we had to go through all of the background check because they wanted those children to meet him on the tarmac at the airport. Now, just in case you ever get the chance to meet the vice president on the tarmac of an airport in the deep south Texas in the summertime, just say no. It is not worth it. But I remember standing there, whether you like that or not, I don't care. I mean, that's where this is not a political statement of any kind. We stood there, and sure enough, we see the 
big plain land and parks out there away from the terminal and secret service guys are coming in everywhere. They're walking through the crowd and looking around. And before it's all said and done, Al Gore comes and he walks right past Ryan and I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And he grabbed my hand and that was the worst handshake I've ever had. That was like grabbing a slab of meat. There was, you know, for a man, he's a big guy. For a man, I expected, you know, crushing kind of grab. It was just weak. And I went away from that. It was the first chance I'd ever had of being in the presence of somebody with that much power. And even though he's vice president, still a lot of power in that office. And I walked away from that thinking, wow, that was everything I did not expect from that kind of an encounter. I'm convinced that a lot of people treat their audiences with God kind of like that. Especially in prayer. We hear these bumper sticker theology statements in church. Prayer changes things. The power of a praying man, those things. And I'm not necessarily arguing with some of that. But we hear those things, but somehow, for many of us, they never seem to measure up to the expectation. And so we, we approach with confidence. But we often walk away in prayer thinking, I don't know if God even heard that or not. You ever have that? Where the things in your life seem to be so big to you that it's as if you go to God and those prayers never leave the river. If that's you, I want to encourage you to look again at these two verses, 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Interesting word, that one. You know, you can hear without really hearing. Let me give you an example. When I was a young child, uh, before school age even, we lived in Bel Air, southwestern part of Houston, over close to Myerland Plaza, those of you who know that part of Houston, just inside of the loop over there. And uh, my brother's two years older than I am, and he went to school, and I was his buddy. And so when he went to school, I thought I should go to school too. I just wasn't quite old enough. And in those days, Mom was keeping me and I guess one of my cousins or a friend's kid or something like that. But uh, these, me and this other boy spent our time together during the day. And one day, we were especially missing my brother. And so I went and told my mother, Mom, I'm going to school. Mom heard me and said, okay. Thinking I'm sure that, you know, it's one of those seasonable play schools. But that's not what I said. I'm a man of my word. Even then, I'm going to school, Mom. So a couple of hours later, when the police found me, looking in the windows of the school trying to find my brother, my mother came and took me home, speaking of child abuse. And she heard me say, I'm going to school. But it didn't register too well. You ever feel like God does you that way with your prayers? Now I'm going to go back to Kevin's prayer earlier. You think God hears those prayers? 
But what does it mean to hear a prayer? This word that John gives us here has a wonderful, rich connotation to it. It is that hearing that involves leaning in close to listen. It's, it's the way Teresa used to make sure that our children were getting what she said when somebody was fixing to die in our household. She would say, you look at me right here. And she knew that if she could get them looking at her face that they were going to hear what she had to say. Same mother, same kid, me and my mother. A number of years later, I was in the backyard playing. And uh, I, for whatever reason, I, I was running across the backyard not paying attention to where I was running. That's dumb, all right? That's just dumb. Because what happened is, full blast, I ran into the chain link fence, and the top of the fence hit me right across the throat. And it hurt so badly, and it knocked me out. I couldn't do anything except just kind of gasp, and I went running in the house, and Mom saw me, and she said, what's the matter? She could tell something was wrong. I... I couldn't get it out. She heard me that time much better than she did when I said I'm going to school. That's the picture of this world. That when we come to God, we have the confidence to come into His presence. That in itself is an incredible blessing for us. But when we do that with all of the other stuff that comes with being God, God leans into us. And he listens to what we have to say. And the word has one other element to it. It involves the predisposition to act favorably on behalf of the one who comes. John, in moving to the close of his letter, just stacks up for us how incredible a privilege it is for us to be the children of God. No wonder he wanted those people to be sure about you see what happens for us as we settle into our nice little comfortable, sometimes cultural Christianity and our nice little bumper sticker sayings that rob us of the depth of the relationship with God. When you're connected with God, life is different than when you're not. Which points me to the last point of confidence. And I know that I'm out of time to so say here quickly, because this is the one that's the challenge for us. Again, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Is that true in your life? Can you look backwards and say, you know, God answered in the affirmative every request I've ever put in front of him. I guess if you take that at face value, then I'll have a jet for a million dollars. I think John, what do you think about that? This is a good time for us to remember that John didn't just someday appear on the scene and decide to write a letter called First John. John was a disciple of Jesus. As a matter of fact, he was one of the inner circle 
one of the three that Jesus pulled to himself on occasions that everybody else didn't get privy to, but they were there. John has a history with Jesus by this time that is rich in and of itself. And so he writes to teach these Christians who are being challenged by false teaching and some of them walking away. And he says these words to them. Where might he have gotten that? If that's not enough for you, let's go backwards. Just I'm going to read very quickly in chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Listen to what John has already written. By this we shall know that we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. So John throws this out there that we have confidence that we have what we ask for. But this is not carte blanche. This is not you can dream it up and you can state it and you can believe it hard enough that God's obligated to give it to you. That makes a mockery of God for who he is. E. Stanley Jones made a great point of reference for us on this. He said that prayer is surrender. And then he went on to talk about being in a boat. And if, you, if you're in a boat, let's go up to the lake up here somewhere. You get in a boat. You throw your anchor out onto the shore. And it catches on a tree. And you start pulling on that rope. You're not pulling the shore to you. You're pulling yourself to the shore. That's what prayer does. It locks us into the sovereignty of God. First, John is talking here about asking according to his will. John heard that from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Now, we use that. I think we use it erroneously often. But we use that in Christendom in our day called the model prayer. People like to call it the Lord's Prayer. That's not a very good statement, actually. Because Jesus didn't say, pray this prayer. He said, pray this way. His teaching was against that empty, rhetorical kind of prayer that the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus said... Our Father, one in heaven, let your name be holy. And we work our way through that and we throw it out as if it's just some kind of a mantra. But the thread that ties the entire model prayer together is the sovereignty of God. Let your will be done. Not mine. John also was there on that fateful night, Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is praying. Lord, I don't want to do this. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. You want to get everything that you pray for? Pray for what God wants. Now this is a point of spiritual growth and a point of spiritual maturity. Because it's one thing for us to pray denying ourselves. It's another thing to come in confidence to say, God, I want to live in such a way that you get what you want in my life all the time. That's the picture that we have. As a matter of fact, not only when you pray that way and what you want is what God wants, that frees God to do those things, that also gets you right off of the throne of your life and you let Him be God to decide what you need and what you get. According to his will. When you only want what he wants for you, then you get what you want. 
best example I can give you of that is uh, a number of years ago now. Teresa and I are finishing now our fourth year here. Um, at least six years ago, we began to feel like maybe when we were serving a lot of the stuff we've been working on, strategic plans, a lot of those things were beginning to, to flesh out. And we knew that there was a couple of options on the table for us. One of them was to get the new vision for that church and stay and fulfill it, or the possibility was that God might move us on. We were open for either one of those. But here's the prayer that I had in that. And I was trying to get out of my last level of schooling, and I had a lot of stuff going on, but here's the prayer that I specifically prayed. Now, God, if you're going to move us, would you please let us go to a place that's pretty? That sounds selfish to you? If you'd have seen what I grew up in, you wouldn't think that's selfish at all. Way out in West Texas, went from there up into the Panhandle, went from the Panhandle down to the Rio Grande Valley eventually. And all of those places in almost 50 years worth of living, there were four big trees in all of those places in all those years. God, if you're going to do this, would you let us go to some places too? And. I don't want to go out to pasture. I do want to go pastoral, but I don't want to go out to pasture and just have to tread water for the rest of my ministry. I want to go to a place where you're at work and all that you've done in my life is brought to bear on the life of that church at that time. Whether you like it or not, God gave me the desires of my when he brought us here, answering both of those prayers at once. So what do you want? And where's God in that? That's right. And Lord, we ask you to drive this message home. For those who are here that do not know you in the saving way. Father, we do not ask for peace for them. We ask that you would make them so divinely uncomfortable that they will run to you for life. And when they do, help them to see incredible joy in life and in the Close, draw us close to yourself. We are in fact your children.